<laughs> First Corinthians chapter 8. You may be thinking, you don't look very confident today. Have you read 1 Corinthians chapter 8? The last time I preached on it, I asked these two questions at the beginning, and I see no reason to change it. Here's the questions. Question number one. How much should I let other Christians' views control my actions? That's the first question. The second one is a little bit the same. Must I limit my liberty by the narrower, more restricted views of other Christians? That's something to really think about. You see, Paul is answering questions sent to him by those in the Corinthian church. He's not there anymore. He was there for a year and a half. And his answer to a specific problem that we will study this morning is contained in chapters 8, 9, 10, and then the first verse of chapter 11. So there's great danger in me dealing this morning with only one chapter. I'm only going to cover the basic problem, but not the whole picture. So I urge you to listen carefully and read ahead and be prepared to be challenged by chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11, chapter 1. Now, the question that Paul is answering here has to do with whether Corinthian Christians should visit a pagan temple and eat meat that has been sacrificed to the small g god of that temple. Plus, whether a Christian should purchase meat that came from the sacrifice in a store outside the temple. And even should a Christian eat meat, Corinthian Christian, by the way, that someone else has purchased and served at a meal in their home or maybe on the backyard barbecue. So the very first sort of sentence, not complete sentence, but chapter 1, verse 1, or chapter 8, verse 1, reads this way. So Paul is answering this question. You remember, I'll remind you because some are newer here. Paul never wrote anything. He had what they called an amanuensis. He would have been in a room. The amanuensis was like a secretary. The man would have been, it would have been a man. He would have been extremely smart and really understood language and grammar and all of this and could quickly take down accurate notes. Paul would have been walking back and forth with all of his emotion, uh, saying what he's saying, thinking about the letter that he's read and trying to answer the question as the amanuensis writes it all down. And so all the way through Paul's writings, you must, especially the Corinthian writings, you must see times when he's in despair, times when he's sitting in a corner, uh, just, just maybe his head in his hands, trying to figure out what is wrong with you. I taught you for 18 months. I was an example to you. And now what are you doing? And so he's, now he starts out with this problem that at first blush doesn't seem to have anything to do with us. And he says, so now, about food sacrificed to idols, and specifically, it would read, now about meat sacrificed to idols. The pagan practices of sacrificing to idols permeated Corinthian society in a way that was very disturbing to some Christians. 
Now, the meat offered on the pagan altars was divided into three portions. So first, the first portion was burned up in a sacrifice. These were the useless parts of the body of the animal, burned up in a sacrifice. Now, when we think of sacrifice as Christians, we think of forgiveness. We think of in the Jewish religion of, at the temple where they would sacrifice animals for the forgiveness of sins. That's not the case here. The sacrifice here was to appease the gods who were always fighting with each other and didn't like the people. And that's why they were doing this. It was very, we would call it superstitious, but for them, they really believed this stuff. And then the second portion, the best part of the, the meat, was given to the priests to eat. And that would be their food. And then the third portion was eaten by the people attending. It was like, the, 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 it was like a restaurant. The cafe was opened. And then... <laughs> And then it was, so the, the, the people attending the worship, uh, they, they would take the, 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 they would eat the meat and there'd be lots left over and that would be taken to the meat market to be sold. And there was so much sacrifice that there were always large amounts of meat for sale cheap. So people purchased this meat and it was the meat served at all public festivals. And, and it was the meat served at your neighbor's barbecue, most likely Sunday afternoon. Well, Saturday in their cases, mostly. Now, here are some of the questions for Christians of that day. Is meat sacrificed to idols spiritually contaminated? That was a question. Or does the pagan god, small g, have any ongoing effect on the meat? Third question. Should Christians eat this meat if offered to them, or should they refuse it? Now, remember, we're in, right now we're in Corinth, not in, uh, not in Sarasota. Uh, we're in a whole different culture. Now, this is clearly not a problem with any of us this morning, not, at least not that I know of. But we have other problems that divide us in the way that eating meat sacrificed to idols divided the Corinthians. Here's some questions for today. Should Christians go to movies? Every time I, I do that, I, the last time I preached that was a long time ago, and when I finished the sermon, there was a, a man who was well-known in the church who was waiting for me, and he says uh, to me, my mother, he was, he was almost angry. I didn't know what he was going to talk about. My mother doesn't believe any Christian should go to any movie theater, and she knows most of them have multiple screens, and if they're, even if they're going to something that is even a Christian movie, there's other demonic-type movies in the movie theater, and so it really bothers her that, uh, that, that Christians would go to a movie theater. So would you stop going to a movie theater? And I didn't tell them that I almost never go to a movie theater because I'm too busy, but besides that, I like to go sometimes, and, but I didn't say that. I said, where does your mother live? She lives in California. I said, is she moving to Sarasota anytime soon? <laughs> no. You're sure? No? Well, I'll tell you what. If she moves to California, or to, to Sarasota and comes to this church, I'll never go to a movie again. So I never saw him after that. It's amazing what gets in, in, in our way. Should Christians drink wine? That's another one. Should Christians drink wine? Uh, and, uh, or should Christians drink it all? Well, my first answer to that is, 
nobody will ever be able to say that Pastor Carl said that Christians can't have wine or any other alcoholic beverage, cannot drink it. But I wish, just, this is just me, this is not Scripture, I wish that the Bible said we couldn't drink it all, and then it would solve a lot of problems I have to deal with. Or this one, this is really important. Should Christians drink coffee? Listen, coffee is a performance-enhancing drug, <laughs> and I'm a pretty active road cyclist, and I drink coffee before, during, and after. So should Christians eat meat? That's just a, another question, vegetarian or not. Now, forget about that for now. This one, though, should Christians dance? Now, you're, this is, when I became a Christian 100 years ago, uh, <laughs> this was a big deal. Dancing was of the devil. And I just did a wedding a couple of weeks ago uh, with Ella and Elliot. And uh, at the, after the wedding ceremony, we went over into the other building. And I've never seen dancing like this. It was choreographed. It was incredible. A lot of our young people were uh, coming around. And the only thing I can say is that the Christians that were dancing were really glad that the old pastor in the suit back there wasn't. <laughs> so it should be, can Christians dance? In that case, those ones on the floor were dancing. The old pastor's not so good at that. Or here's one. Should Christians have a Christmas tree? We've had people leave the church on that one. Or what about Easter egg hunts? Well, I'm against Easter egg hunts, but we'll talk about that later. There are many, many more that could be added to the list. But since we're here at Calvary Chapel, most of us have not been subjected to some of the lists that exist in Christian circles. And some of you would find it hard to believe what is on such lists, both written and assumed. Again, the last time I preach in this, I don't like to, not, I don't just preach old sermons, but I, I've never forgotten this. It was a real big deal at the time. There was a church in town that was splitting. Everybody knew about it in the Christian community, at least, over whether you could own a TV or not. And you could maybe think of what that group of people were uh, that are, there's a lot of them in our uh, community in Sarasota area. And, uh, and so they literally split, and there was two churches now. One church was that you could have a TV church, and the other church is you couldn't have a TV church. Now, these are not easy issues to solve because they have more to do with emotions and prejudices than any kind of logic. And I don't think I've ever preached on a subject that is as difficult or dangerous to explain. So please listen carefully so there is no misunderstanding about this text. Take notes, think deeply, pay close attention. For instance, the Christmas tree and Easter egg issue. This, this is an issue that I've personally struggled with, not the Christmas tree. It doesn't bother me in the least to have a tree full of lights with many presents under it. I'm aware of the pagan roots of the tree, but as Martin Luther of the 1500s redeemed beer hall tunes for the communication of the gospel, by the way, a mighty fortress is my God. I'd love to sing it for you, but it would chase you all out of here, is my favorite hymn, and it was this, the original music came from a beer hall. And I can redeem the pagan tree symbol to represent Jesus as the light of the world and the presence as pictures of his grace so freely given. But what about Easter egg hunts? Well, I'm against Easter egg hunts. Really? 
Well, the resurrection is the key doctrine of Christianity, not Easter eggs and bunnies. Well, at least I was until someone asked me what day it was. You realize, don't you, that today is sun day and tomorrow is moon day and then we have Thor's day. Thor's? Yes, Thor's, the god of war. So Thursday is war day. The days of the week are named for pagan gods. And even more than that, we are really in trouble when we realize that January represents the Roman god Janus, March the god Mars, who was the god of war in Greek paganism. Now, I know that none of us struggle with the names of the days or months, and a few of us would have a problem with the Christmas tree. But yet, I can hear it. Pastor, wait a minute. We understand all that. You're avoiding the issue. Uh, But here, let me tell you this. Well, let me tell you this. In Corinth, there, there were two particular parties. There were lots more than two, but two. One was called the permissive party. And their theme was, we can do whatever we want because we know the truth behind these issues and there are no other gods but the one God we believe in. Now, personal freedom was their top concern. Nobody tells me what to do. Verse 1, let's go start now. Look at your Bibles. Now about food, sacrifice to idols. Now, there were a lot of things in this letter that we don't have that Paul is answering. And as he's answering them, he quotes them. So verse 1 has sort of a quote from the Corinthians. It reads in my Bible, we know that we possess all knowledge. But what Paul is really saying here is that you say, you say that we all possess knowledge. And then he's saying, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, this kind of knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Did you notice the name of the sermon? Knowledge or love. That's what it's all about. The whole issue here is knowledge versus love. That's the issue. The knowledge spoken of is that which we all know this morning. We know that meat sacrificed to idols is exactly the same as meat not sacrificed to idols. In other words, it makes no difference at all if we eat meat sacrificed to idols or processed through the local meatpacking plant. But not everyone knew this in Corinth. There was a second party in Corinth. uh, And that party, uh, they were those without such knowledge, and it was called the weak conscience party. They were Christians but they have weak consciences. They believed eating meat sacrificed to idols does make a difference. They were part of all of that. And so our question this morning, what should our attitude be to them, to the weak conscience party? Well, we'll see in a minute. And the answer in a word, though, in one word, the answer is, the ruling word of the Christian life is love, agape love. A love that willingly forgets about myself and genuinely cares more about others than about me. There's a verse for that. Philippians chapter 2, verse 4 reads, Each of you, the Apostle Paul uh, penned this verse, we say, Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then in verse 2 in your Bibles, 
Those who think they know something do not yet know what they ought to know. Here's the way he's be. This is a very sarcastic verse, if you understood all the grammar and stuff. He's saying those who think they have arrived at ultimate knowledge, they don't know what they're talking about. Now, we're all familiar with the term know-it-all. I learned this term when I was very young. Um, I never really understood. My mother used to say, son, you think you know it all. You're just a know-it-all. I never understood because I thought I did. I knew a lot. <laughs> the term is used about a person who we know knows little but thinks they know everything. That's the idea. That kind of a knower is full of self-pride, or as Paul puts it, is puffed up. And the question then becomes, what should a man or a woman who does have knowledge act like? Now, this is getting past the Corinthian culture, and, and we need to think about this. And here's the answer. And it may at first seem kind of strange. Verse 3, but whoever loves God is known by God. Now, it's actually easy to understand, uh, and the best way to understand it is by thinking about the most memorized verse in the Bible, sometimes even forced on us uh, to memorize. Almost everybody knows the verse, even if they don't know the address, John 3.16. It reads this way, for this is how God loved the world. That's talking about the people in the world. That's us. God gave his one and only son, that's Jesus, that's the cross and the resurrection and all of that, so that everyone who believes in Jesus will not perish, that's an eternity in hell, but instead have eternal life. That's a type of life now that goes on forever. So when we realize, this is what verse 3 really means, when we realize how little we deserve God's unconditional love, when we realize how much God loves us, when we recognize the sacrifice of the cross, then we will afford others that same love, whether they deserve it or not, whether they are mistaken in their knowledge or not. Here's a little poem we're thinking about. Isn't it odd that a being like God who sees the facade, still loves the clod, that's me, he made out of sod? Now, isn't that odd? I mean, think deeply about this little poem, and you'll begin to see yourself and others in a completely different light. You will, I will soon realize that God has overlooked much that I should not be doing and has saved me and is praying for me regardless. God was patient with me and gently led me through those things that I eventually realized I needed to change. So now we go to verse 4 and a few other verses. Verse 4. So then, Paul says, about eating food sacrificed to idols. I think right now he's on the edge of a little bit of, he's kind of upset. We know, or a better way to put it is, we agree, we agree that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. We agree. For even if there are so-called gods, so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, uh, for, yet for us, 
There's but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, through whom all things came and through whom we live. So Paul is returning to Genesis to underline the reality of God. The only God is the creator of the universe. Therefore, God did not create other small g gods. They are just made up by men, nailed down so they don't fall over. Paul also reminds us of the words of John's gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that demonstrate the deity of Jesus Christ. John also refers back to Genesis in his gospel, right at the very beginning, the same start as the book of Genesis when he opens his gospel. And in John chapter 1, the first three verses and then the 14th verse read this way. So watch it on the screen carefully. He starts off, in the beginning was the word. In the Genesis account, it says in the beginning was God. The word here in Greek is logos, and every time I teach on it, I always say that logos is a word, it's a philosophical word that means really the meaning of life. In this case, it's a picture of Jesus. But it says in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. So there's a separation between the word, the logos here, and God the Father. And the word was God. So there's they're both God, and he was with God in the beginning, this Logos. All things are created through him, the Logos, and apart from him, not one thing was created that was, has been created. Now, the question immediately is, like, it, obviously, it's a who. Who is the Logos? Verse 14 reads, the word, the Logos, became flesh. That's the incarnation. That's Jesus coming to this earth. And he took up residence among us. In a more paraphrased Bible version, it reads that he, he pitched his tent among us. It's a good picture because he wasn't here to stay. He was here to die for my sins, to live and die for my sins. And so the word became flesh and took up residence among us, and we observed his glory, the glory of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. But even though... We know, as some did in that day, that there are no other gods and that idols are lifeless pieces of wood or metal. In the Roman society, there were many gods. Even the Caesar was often called Lord or God. And it came to the point in the early church when not admitting Caesar as Lord would mean your death if you were a Christian. So there are no lords such as Caesar or God such as those Romans believed in, but only one God, the Father and Jesus Christ, his only Son. So that's just the fact of it all. We all agree with that. Paul says we all agree with that. Now look at verse 7, the first sentence. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. I mean, he's really saying in the church... There are those who have become Christians, but they, they don't really understand all that yet. And here's where love over knowledge comes in. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. Love considers the other person's lack of knowledge. Love is not self-centered. Love does not demand its own way. And still in verse 7, some people are still so accustomed to idols 
that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a God, and since their conscience is weak and their knowledge is lacking, it is defiled, it is stained, it's polluted, it's contaminated. So this pictures those with a weak conscience being polluted by a sense of guilt when they're tempted to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Therefore, for these Christians, it was a sin to eat meat sacrificed to gods, to idols. It was a tremendous pull. Now, I, I, was, I sat for a long time just thinking, what would be an illustration that would help us to sort of picture this for ourselves, to picture what these people were like? And I hope this works, but Valerie and I, we like to eat out in restaurants. We've been doing that for 50 years. And so, uh, and in Sarasota, uh, when we moved here, there's lots of restaurants, Sarasota, Bradenton area, and so we had our favorite restaurants. Some of them we went to enough that we were known when we walked in. And then from time to time, over all, uh, all the years we've been here, uh, a restaurant would close. And you felt really bad, but then it would open again as a different kind of restaurant. And we'd go to the new restaurant because we would, uh, it, it, I mean, let's see what it's like. We really miss the such and such restaurant, and now this is a new restaurant, different kind of food, but that's fine. We like just about every kind of food. And so we would go in the new restaurant and sit there, and I can feel it. I, li I literally can feel it. The first thing you do, I did, did you look around, and that's different color in the walls, and they move these over here and this here, and you're remembering in, a, in, in, that's, in this sense, in a good way, you're remembering what it was like when there weren't those pictures up there and where those tables were over here and all of that kind of stuff. And then you look at the menu, and it's totally different, and, and it's not necessarily different bad, but it's just that you, oh, they don't have that sandwich that I like, so they don't have this, and they, we can't have this. And, you, and then you, you talk about, you remember the... Remember the a particular waitress that waited on us and wonder where she is and all this kind of stuff. And you're just drawn emotionally right back as if you're really there. Now, that's not going to hurt anybody, but it'll hurt a lot of people if the thing that is being drawn back to is evil. And that's the picture that Paul is writing. Therefore, woe to any believer who would cause another to struggle unnecessarily with this problem by exercising their freedom to eat meat sacrificed in the temple and cause them to have uh, that possibility. Let me give you an example that might even be disturbing to some. Valerie and I were in Orlando quite a lot of years ago. Uh, at a special, we were away for a special reason, and we were eating in this really, really nice restaurant. And so there uh, been a lot of pressures in the church, and we're sitting there, and and uh, I just said to Valerie, I said, listen, we walked over here. We're going to walk back to our hotel. Listen, if you feel like you'd like a, a little a glass of wine with your meal, I'd even join you in that. And just as I said that, and she was shaking her head, no, 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 I, I wouldn't do that. And uh, we heard, Pastor, Carl, Valerie, and a couple just leaving were at our table. And there's nothing but water on the table. And it just struck me all of a sudden. Because quite frankly, I had not too long ago preached this sermon, and it struck me. Now, now, they weren't 
ex-alcoholics or anything like that. They were just really nice people. But what if they were someone who had really struggled with alcohol and hadn't had a drink for a long time, and they see Pastor Carl and Valerie, they don't have any problem having a a, a glass of wine. And uh, Pastor Carl even said, the Bible doesn't say you can't have a drink. What if they had one out and went maybe to a bar and had a few drinks too many and then got in the car? You know, what if that had to happen? Would that have I be responsible anyway? According to Paul, yes. According to Paul, I would have been. But look at verse 8. And so this is really important. It even ends up sort of moving a little bit in meaning. Verse 8. But food, Paul says, does not bring us near to God. That's what some of them believed. We're no worse off if we do not eat and no better if we do. So there were some who actually believed that eating meat sacrificed to idols brought them closer to God by proving they no longer believed in the idols that the meat had been sacrificed to. That was their belief. And I'm sure none of us today believe that. But there may be some who actually believe if they obey the food laws in the Bible, I've met people like this, uh, that they'll become blessed by God in some way. And Paul makes it clear that is not true. Eating in every, any form never brings one closer to God. There are no spiritual foods, even if some are more nutritional than others. Adam and Eve were originally vegetarians, and then meat eaters. God commanded the priests, God commanded the priests in the temple to eat meat, and Jesus would have definitely eaten meat. The food laws in the Old Testament may have saved many from being contaminated by foods that were dangerous without the understanding we have today or the refrigeration and the cooking abilities. But Jesus declared all foods clean, and that means both lobsters and pork, especially pulled pork. (laughs) We need to hear from Jesus. Mark chapter 7, verse 14. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him, and he said, Listen to me, everyone. These are the words of Jesus, remember. And understand this. Nothing outside a person can make them unclean. Unclean means that they're, they've, uh, they're, they're not spiritual. So uh, nothing outside a person can make them unclean by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that makes them unclean. And after he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked, him about the parable. And I can just see Jesus. Are you so dull? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can make them unclean? For it doesn't go into their hearts, but into their stomach and then out of their body. And then this statement. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. So the list of food laws in the Old Testament labeled clean and unclean, labeled eat and don't eat, is now labeled clean and eat. So eat any way you want. Pay attention to your special needs. Val can't eat some foods that I can because of some specific health issues. But what we eat should be prefaced by 1 Timothy 4.4. It reads, for everything God created, and he created all this food, is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So when I bow my head at a meal, I can thank God for what I'm going to eat, and Valerie can thank God for what she's not going to eat because she can't eat that. But we can both thank God. In Acts chapter 10, there's this incredible picture of Peter. Uh, Peter just is, has to be my favorite 
person in the Bible just to make fun of, uh, but what a powerful man of God. We heard from him last week here. Um, Peter was at Simon the Tanner's house. Cornelius was a long ways away. He's a, he's a military man in charge of a lot of people. An angel appears to Cornelius and said, you've got to meet this Peter guy. He's in, uh, in Simon the Tanner's house. In the meantime, so he sends some, some of his people down to get Peter. And uh, Peter's really hungry. He goes up on the roof of the house. All those houses had roofs. And then he has a vision of a blanket coming down that has all kinds of unclean food in it. And he hears a voice that says, take and eat, kill and eat. Peter says, there's no way I would do that. I'm a religious Jew. I've, I'm, you know, I'm perfect in all these things. I would never eat any such thing. So the voice says again, Peter, take, you know, kill and eat. No, I'll never do that. I'll never do that. And then a third time, Peter, kill and eat. And the blanket disappeared and somebody wrapped at the front door and Peter ends up going to Cornelius' house eating, uh, not only being in a Gentile's house, but eating the Gentile food because that's what the whole thing was about. And a revival broke out and all kinds of people got saved. We must never let food get in the way of the gospel under any circumstance. So we're free to eat whatever we want. We're free to watch any movie we desire. We're free to have uh, a Christmas tree or go to an Easter egg hunt. We're free to have a glass of wine with her meal or a cold beer on a hot day. But, verse 9, and again, grammar is important here. It says, be careful. It's in what is called in Greek grammar imperative mode. It means it's a command. So it's, he's, it's like a, 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 you know, a sergeant giving a command. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Not just causing a weak Christian to stumble by producing a sense of guilt, but to stumble by going back into sinful practices of their past. And notice the word weak. This means that you... I might have the ability to do these things without harming my commitment to Jesus. But that's not the case with the weak. Now, this suggests that there are those among us, even here this morning, who need instruction, who need training, and time to grow in grace. The weak need time to grow up, but because of their past lives, growing up might need glorification. It might need heaven to be complete. So here's the question. Are you, am I, willing to give up my freedom for the sake of those who need my help? Now, this is totally opposite to the I can do whatever I want self-centered mode of the world around us today. Even Christians use the language of rights and ask the question, why should I give up something because of someone who has not grown up as a Christian yet? Well, N.T. Wright puts it this way. Insisting on one's rights, even insisting on one's rights as a Christian, is a sign that something else other than the true God is being worshipped. Wow. I mean, we are a family. A family who loves and makes way for those who need extra help. A family with a father who is eternal and has loved us enough to send a son to die for us so that we can be part of his eternal family. Now, there are those who are not weak, but use the language of the weak. They're not hard to spot. 
They're the hard-lined legalists that believe everyone should do things their way because they're right and everyone else is wrong. They need to learn about grace. They need to grow up and love others. Nevertheless, there are the genuinely weak who need our help. The man or woman who has had a severe drinking problem doesn't need to return to the bar to prove that they have stopped drinking. They need strong Christians who are willing to exercise their freedom not to drink and instead spend time helping their weaker brother or sister to grow in Christ. And this isn't easy, is it? It's not. Wait for chapters 9 and 10. I'm not going to come. <laughs> Verse 10. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple... Won't that person be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? Verse 11. So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. This is a picture of a Christian reclining at a table in one of the pagan temples and enjoying a feast of meat freely. Then someone who has been saved out of that pagan temple sees you and decides that he or she can come back and also exercise their freedom. But instead, they get caught back up in the sinful practices of the temple and ruin the Christian life and witness. That is why Paul later strictly, he strictly forbids the Corinthian Christians from ever going to the temple or eating the sacrificial meat. Here's a sneak preview of where Paul is heading. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, a few verses. He writes, Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? That's a powerful set of verses. Paul exhorts the Corinthians, he exhorts us to exercise our freedom to not do what grace allows how we see this weak Christian is important. He's not just a weak Christian, but a brother or sister for whom Christ died. So in the next sentence, Paul makes it very clear just how wrong the so-called strong Christian is in the case of going to the pagan temple. And in verse 12, second last verse, when you sin against them, in this way, and wound their weak conscience, he says, you sin against Christ. This is very dramatic, but also very clear. Christ is the head of the church. The church is us. We are called the body of Christ. Therefore, to cause someone to destroy the Christian witness is to cause the body of Christ to be injured. And the last verse reads, verse 13, therefore, Paul says, if what I eat or where I go causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I'll never eat meat again, never go there again, so that I will not cause them to fall. And I hope you realize this is not a comment on meat versus vegetables, but it is a comment on the Christian principle of unconditional love. Paul makes himself the ultimate example He's an apostle. 
He has unusual authority in the church. He is strong, a deeply spiritual man. Paul could eat meat or go anywhere with no conscience problem at all. Paul could go to any movie and discern what is good or bad in that movie. Paul could have a drink in a bar and not get drunk or injure his Christian witness. Paul is a powerful, spirit-filled, spirit-controlled Christian, but he demonstrates his power by giving up that which is okay for him in consideration, in love, for those believers who are not strong and would be damaged doing what Paul is easily able to do. So this chapter deals with the gray areas of our Christian lives. Now, biblically, some things are always wrong, biblically. Sex before marriage, adultery, murder, drunkenness, always wrong. But drinking alcoholic beverages is not always wrong unless it leads to drunkenness or to the stumbling of a weaker Christian, then it is always wrong. So the bottom line will always be that Christians are to live for others and not for themselves. You'll find that's freeing, by the way. In 1 Corinthians 10, 24, uh, these are Paul's words, no one should seek their own good but the good of the other person. Uh, the, uh, old illustration, I didn't mean to do it, but I'm, I'm okay on time here, so I'm just going to take a moment to do it. I know of a circumstance, a real circumstance, where a doctor, a medical doctor of, of, of note, who really had incredible skills, uh, struggled with depression terribly. And finally, he locked himself in his home office, and his wife couldn't get in, and she phoned another friend who was also a doctor, and the other friend came and banged in the door, and he let him in, and he sat down in front of him, and the guy was really depressed. And he said to him, he said, this other doctor, uh, uh, he, they were both Christians, the other doctor said, I'm going to write you a prescription. You got a pad there? And they had a, so he got a prescription pad. I'm going to write you a prescription, but first you have to promise me you'll fulfill the description, prescription starting today. And uh, he said, okay, I'll, I'll do it. So he, he wrote, put it in front of him, and it was a note and an address to a local, uh, what I like to call an old folks home, a care home, whatever you want to call it. And that terribly depressed doctor went to that home. He had all of these medical skills, which were great help, and he also was able to encourage many people to help understand different things that were wrong with them. And he never stopped doing that. And he never had that problem again because, you see, he was helping others. When we forget about ourselves and help others and see them change, that changes our lives too. Well, Paul ends chapter 10 with these words. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for God's glory. Give no offense to the Jews or the Greeks or the church of God, just as I, Paul says, also try to please all people in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. And then he says this important thing. We did a whole sermon on it recently. Be imitators of me as I also am of Christ. And then this passage that we've just studied now is about loving one another. And love is an action verb. 1 Corinthians 13, you hear it at weddings all the time. It could save a marriage. Uh, let me read this to you. You can help me read it. You'll see why in a minute. 1 Corinthians 13. If I have not love, I am, say the word. And if I have faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. 
If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It hardly even notices when others do it wrong. That's a paraphrase from the Living Bible. Love hardly even notices when others do it wrong. It keeps no record of wrongs. Oh, yeah, but 10 years ago you said this. 20 years ago you said this. I've heard that doing marriage counseling. No, to keep no record of wrongs, love never fails. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So in conclusion, love others as Christ loved us. He loved us when we did not love him. That is how we are to love one another. One of the commentators I read had traveled to different parts of Asia and discovered how relevant the passage is for even today in these cult those cultures. And he writes, Nevertheless, the important fact is that Christian behavior is dictated not by knowledge, freedom, or law, but by love for those within the community of faith. Everything one does that affects relationships in the body of Christ, that's the church, should have care for brothers and sisters as its primary motivation. And we'll end uh, with a verse from Jesus that if you come here for a while, you've heard many times, it was at the foot washing, and Jesus said to his disciples and says to us today, a new command I give you, love one another. And here's why it's new, five words, as I have loved you. He died for us. So you must love one another. Now, uh, we're going to pray and then we can worship with another song. But if you're here this morning, you're online and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, and Lord, you're really missing out. There's nothing better than the body of Christ, the church, with all of our foibles and difficulties and problems and troubles that we cause amongst ourselves. That's fine. Uh, but we're a family and we stick together and we know we have eternal life and we know that we're going to spend eternity with Jesus and it's going to be better than anything we could imagine. In eternity, every chapter uh, the, of life is better than the last one. And it just goes on forever. It never gets boring. All tears are wiped away and we experience the real joy of salvation. And so if you've never had that experience, please don't wait. Even right now, just say, Dear Jesus, thank you for dying for my sins. I am a sinner. I don't know how to love like that. You would have to take something supernatural to help me to love like that. So come into my life. Fill me with your spirit and help me. And he will. And then keep coming and we'll disciple you and teach you. And you'll be able to grow as a Christian and love uh, one another. Stand with me and we'll pray. Father, this passage even scared me to think of preaching on it, but it's so powerful when your spirit is involved to see how much we're to love one another. And there's nothing that we couldn't give up in this short time we spend on this earth that, that would not be worth giving up because of what we're going to get in reward in heaven. So help us to be those who live now for forever and love brothers and sisters in Christ, especially those that are difficult. In Jesus' name, amen.